Father, open your word to us now. We thank you for Jesus, for your spirit, for the church, and for the celebration of hope that we can enjoy in Christ tonight. Uh, bless us with understanding, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as it's been uh, described to us, we have moved in 40 weeks through the full scriptures. We had eight sermons on the Torah books from Genesis to Deuteronomy, then eight from the prophet books, and eight from the writings, and eight from the New Testament accounts of Jesus, and then eight from the New Testament letters. And Revelation, which is a letter, a prophecy, and a vision, or an apocalyptic, or a revelation, it's three kinds of literature, is unique in the biblical canon, because nowhere will you find in Revelation the writer saying something like, thus it is written, or thus it was said by Isaiah, or thus the prophet said. Peter and Paul and James and Hebrews often quote texts from other Old Testament scriptures, but Revelation doesn't. What you find in Revelation is something much deeper and more embedded. It's been estimated that of the 404 verses of Revelation, something like 278 of them, so 70% of the book, has just got allusions and pictures and images and words that come from Genesis, Exodus, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Zechariah, Daniel, etc., etc. And the author of Revelation expects you to pick it up. It's like this multi-layered cake where it's reusing again and again the images of the Old Testament texts without alerting us to the fact. That is why the book is so challenging to read because the author of Revelation assumes that the readers of Revelation are thoroughly immersed in the whole scripture. The Bible is an amazing revelation and we've talked about it in chart form here tonight uh, but it's a good time to remind ourselves that we must immerse ourselves in the full scriptures if we are to understand the last book of scripture. I still remember my minister Graham Miller when I was just a young fellow he's the one who said to me don't get too excited about what you're doing for God in your 20s because your most fruitful years will be in your 60s. He also said to me uh, don't read Revelation until you've read Exodus seven times, Zechariah seven times, Daniel seven times, because you won't get it. And I think he was right. But wonderfully, the imagery in Revelation in 21 and 22 uh, is at least in part drawn from the first two chapters of Scripture, Genesis 1 and 2. So we've got this inclusio, we've got this frame, uh, these bookends, Genesis 1-2, Revelation 21-22. And uh, the images of Genesis are abounding in the final two chapters of Revelation. Uh, most of them are from the Garden of Eden. Uh, images of water and trees and fruitfulness and abundance. And some people say that in Revelation 21-22 we see Eden restored in fact, uh, the NIV version I've got has got that heading in Scripture, which is a ghastly heading. Eden is not restored. Eden is fulfilled. 
expanded, culminated. This is not Eden. This is a city garden. This is a whole new creation garden. It's bigger, better and grander than Eden ever was. Eden is not the future. We're not going back to Eden. Just as Jesus is greater than Adam or Eve, what Christ has accomplished going forward and what we have inherited and what he has promised is far greater than Eden. We're not going back. We're going forward. This present creation, distorted in its goodness, is a sign of the future. We're not going back. There is no reversal in Scripture. There is redemption and forward movement. So what we're looking at in Revelation 21 and 22 tonight, and mainly the first five verses of the text in chapter 22, is stunning. So let's have a look at it. And when I say let's have a look, that's exactly right, because the book of Revelation is not apprehended through quiet reading inside our heads or academic study alone. It is apprehended by imagination, by visual imagination, by sitting with the imagery. This book is written to be seen and heard. And if there's ever a case for walking around the house reading out aloud, then the book of Revelation makes the case. Let it be heard. Let it be seen. In Revelation 22, we have, in the first five verses, visions of the new creation. And then in 6 to 21, voices with concluding warnings and invitations. So the visions and the voices. And it's mainly the visions that we're going to attend to tonight. The question is, what does John see? What are we seeing in the first five verses, particularly, of chapter 22? What are we seeing? Well, we're seeing multiple images, but one of them surely comes to the fore. What we are seeing in 22, which is a continuation of 21, so this is the final visions of a chapter of visions prior to it, what we are seeing is God's bride. We are seeing the bride of the Lamb. John says in 21.9, through the angel, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. John is on a towering mountaintop. And he will see from this mountain, which is close as it were to heaven and looking down on the earth, he will see the bride descend and various multiple images of the bride. I remember a number of years ago now reading Revelation and being dumbstruck by the claims of 19, 20, 21, 22. The Lamb marries the new creation. It's picking up the intimacy, the oneness of Genesis 2. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. No shame. 
Jesus the Lamb marries the creation. Reality is his bride. Restored reality is his bride. Renewed reality is the bride of Jesus. That's what John sees. We have a wedding coming up here next Saturday, the 18th, which we have been getting ready for for a while now. And even last night, uh, Stevie and Em sent me a new version of the um, vows to, uh, to repeat. <laughs> Could you change the vows? On that day, the bride and the groom will be beautiful, adorned and fit for a wedding. And that's what we've got here in Revelation 22. We have a beautiful adorned bride for Jesus. So think about that in your imagining as we look at the multiple images of the bride of the Lamb. Everything in Revelation 22 is light. Uh, I noticed the signs that Bob and Jan put in the front garden. Everything is light and fresh and new and free. And nothing here is brand new, rather renewed. In 21.5, the Lord says, I am making all things new, not I am making all new things. There's nothing new here. What God has done is take his handiwork, his glorious creation, and liberate it from curse and darkness and twisting and corruption and distortion. I am making all things new, not I am making all new things. What you see around you today is what will be liberated. The colours, the flowers, the birds, the sky, the clouds, the earth, the seasons, the music, the artworks, humans, the beauty of God's world. I am making all things new, not I am making all new things. All things belong to Christ. All things will be set free. Think of anything in the world today, sometimes horribly misused or abused or corrupted or distorted. Think of any aspect of human life, it will be new, renewed. I am making all things new. It's an entire new heaven and earth, 21.1. And it's pictured in 21.2 and following as coming out of heaven, a new Jerusalem, a new holy city. Don't forget, John is on this mountaintop and he sees it coming down. And the dimensions of the city, uh, changed into kilometres for tonight, are vast. What John sees is a city creation that completely fills his vision from horizon to horizon. It's 2,200 kilometres long. It's 2,200 kilometres wide. And it's 2,200 kilometres high. It's this huge cube. It's like the Holy of Holies. 
in the tabernacle or the temple, but it's vast. And can you see it? It's made of pure gold. The main street is pure gold. The wall around the city is 65 metres thick. It's a safe city. It's a protected city. It's an enclosed city. It's a strong city and it fills John's vision. And as he looks at the city in 22, everything is shining like jewels, like pure glass. It's full of light. And in 22, one right down the middle of the golden street flows a river of water that is life-giving. And where is the river flowing from? It's flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb which has come down from heaven and is now in the city. Jerusalem, earthly Jerusalem, has no river flowing through it. River has to be, water has to be brought into the city. This new, renewed Jerusalem has a river flowing right through the middle and it's life-giving water. And on either side of the street and the river, there is a new tree of life that bears fruit all year round, 12 crops fruitful perpetually. And the leaves of this tree are leaves of healing for all the nations, for Israel, for Egypt, for Assyria, for Babylon, for Australia, for New Zealand, for Tonga, for Samoa. All nations are healed by the leaves of this tree. And in 22.3, wonderfully, we see, 22.3 and 4, that God's throne is in the city, the Lamb is in the city, and God's people will see his face. We will see his face. In the Old Testament, no one could look on the face of God. You could see his shadow passing or his back, but you couldn't look on his face. Now, the face of God, the presence, the personal, shining, glorious face is in the city, and his name is on the foreheads of the citizens of the city who will reign forever. Everyone in this city is royal and what's in the city is just as importantly matched with what's not in the city. So in 21 and 22 of Revelation, we've got a bunch of things that are not in the vision. There is no sea in the vision that John sees. He is no ocean. He doesn't see any raging chaos. He sees no monsters, no beasts in the sea, no place of darkness or graves and death. There is no abyss there is no chaos to tame anymore. There are no tears in the vision. There's no mourning, no crying in the vision. There's no one in pain in this vision. There's no curse in this vision. No one is dying. Remarkably, there's no temple in the vision because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are present personally. There's no sun or moon in the vision because the Lord lightens the new creation. The Lamb is its lamp. There's no nighttime in this vision. It's just light. There's nothing impure, nothing shameful 
and nothing deceitful in this vision. Now these are visions to be interpreted. So don't let your Western scientific mindset literalise what is image here. Enjoy what John is saying about this future without threat of danger or death. Here are ultimate visions of peace and glory, weighty visions of a fruitful, peaceful and abundant world. These are visions of a world in which a holy God is completely at home. What is the most beautiful thing you have ever seen? Just think for a moment, perhaps close your eyes. What is the most beautiful thing you've ever seen? Something that lives in your imagination. Perhaps it was a spectacular waterfall or a sunset or a, a city landscape or perhaps it's a person or an artwork or a building. Whatever it is, it's nothing compared to these visions in Revelation 21 and 22. These are the most beautiful visions in the Bible. You need to sit with them. We need to imagine them and we need to claim them as our future. This is your future. This is your future. Or is it? Because when the voices speak in 22.6 and following, we hear from an angel, from John, from Jesus, from the Spirit of God, from the bride. They all speak. But it's not idealistic what the voices say, as the Bible concludes. There's a mixed set of words that we hear. Some are words of invitation and some are words of warning and even exclusion. So let's take the words of invitation first. In 17, 22, 17, the spirit and the bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. This is the invitation to all who read or hear this scroll. Now this scroll was initially read uh, throughout the ancient world, uh, of which John was a part, he's on Patmos, he's in exile, Christians are being killed, there's martyrs in Pergamum, Antipas has been executed. Come, he says, if you want to be part of this glorious future, if you're thirsty, come, if you want a free gift of life, come, trust the word of God, wait for the return of Jesus, live as one of God's people and receive this inheritance, be part of the great marriage that will occur. But also, in the vision, John sees people outside the city. And the words are striking. 22, 14 and 15, God says, Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. But outside, he says, outside are the dogs. And he uses a term here for a wild, ravenous, destructive dog, an ancient animal that was dangerous. And he describes the dogs, those who practice magic arcs, the sexually immoral, 
the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. This is the message of Scripture over and over again. You must repent. You must turn to Jesus. You must have the name of the Lamb on your forehead in the vision. Because there are some outside who don't worship the Lamb or Almighty God. And these are the ones in the ancient world who still worship the Roman Emperor and the pantheon of gods of that time. Who practice magic arts and cult prostitution and killing and idolatry. And they're outside the city in the vision. I love the fact that the scriptures aren't idealistic in some sort of naive, romantic way. They always set before their readers a choice. Whose voice do you obey? What do you love? Will you be a disciple of Jesus? Will you follow the Lamb? Yes, then you'll be blessed. This is your future. And John sees others who won't and who are locked out. They don't enter the new Jerusalem. The glorious future is not for them. We need to tell people about this biblical hope. And that's what this chapter is about. Finally, it's a set of visions of hope, which is one of the greatest words and the greatest virtues in life. And one of the most damning words in English language is the word hopeless. One of the saddest indictments on life is when people say, it's hopeless, it's hopeless. When life grinds us down and tragedy strikes in time of prolonged suffering, we can feel hopeless. And some who are listening tonight might themselves be feeling hopeless or might know others who are feeling hopeless. How does Revelation 21 and 22 help us? Well, there are so many bleak predictions for the future of the world, for the future of human life, in stories like consumerism, in this great escape to try to get to Mars or some other planet. Revelation 21 and 22 is the true vision of the future. And how does it help those who are struggling? How did it help John in exile or the persecuted churches of the first century? Well, it helps, I think, because hope doesn't merely describe what we're waiting for. Hope is a present virtue. Faith, love, hope are the three great characteristics, some people call them the theological virtues, of today's human life. Years ago, somebody said to me, hope has at least three components, and they're all present. The first one is faith. Faith is the ground from which hope grows. Faith is what you're confident about. Faith is what you cling to. Faith is what you believe in. Faith is the word you trust. You don't have to wait for hope, because hope fuels your current confidence and faith in God and so today we choose to hold on to what God says is true and live according to it. So faith is for the now. But secondly, hope always consists of a renewed imagination. 
Christian life is not just about thinking well and believing deeply. It's about imagining. Of all people in the world, Christians ought to have the most lively imaginations. We ought to write the best literature. We ought to sing the best songs. We ought to dream the best dreams. Your imagination is now and it's fueled by visions such as Revelation 21 and 22. What are you longing for? What are you dreaming about? What do you daydream about? What do you celebrate in that imagination world which is so mysterious? Faith, imagination, and then action. Hopeful people lead. Hopeful people persevere. Hopeful people fight because they believe that tomorrow can be better and the future will be better because Christ holds it. Action. Hopelessness gives up. Hopefulness perseveres, prays, acts, gives, initiates, leads, works and acts. Faith, imagination and action. They're all present. And that's what hope's all about. We're not just waiting. We're trusting. We're confident. We're doing. We're imagining. We're dreaming. We're longing. We're persevering. We're working. We're initiating. We're leading. We're acting until Christ returns or we go to be with him. So particularly in hard times and for relationships with people in hard times, let's tell them about this hope-filled future. When we started out this series some 40-odd weeks ago, uh, it was fueled somewhat by Naomi Reed's book, A Time to Hope. And I thought it would be fitting to finish this sermon with her or extract from her 31st December devotion, which is on this passage, Revelation 22. This is what she says on her devotion for December 31. The last word in the Bible is not work or try hard or do better. It's come. Jesus announced the new restored world and he issued a glorious invitation. He said, come. Sometimes I ask my friends what they're looking forward to in a fully redeemed world. One of them who lives with polio says, She's looking forward to running down the stairs. Another friend who has a daughter who has a disability says she's looking forward to seeing her daughter's face when she gets her resurrection body. Another friend who struggles with singleness says he's looking forward to flourishing relationships. In every part of life, there will be full and complete restoration. There will be no more fear, there will be no more evil or funerals. There will be no more greed or injustice. For that reason, we can be utterly hopeful. Well, amen to those words and to the vision of Revelation 22. Back to you guys.